Welcome to the Smartest Amazon Seller Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Needham. I am a now nine-year Amazon seller. That's like that's like a hundred years in uh, in, in e-commerce years. Um, not really. There's people that have been around a little bit longer than me. But um, my goal of this podcast is uh, to help you guys become the smartest you can be because I do think that uh, education is extremely important for a very fast changing dynamic uh, ecosystem that is Amazon and e-commerce. Um, my next guest actually did something that no one else has ever done. He sent me his book uh, before the podcast. And it was very relevant because my brother um, had been reading the book be- before and started uh, telling me what it talked about. And it's very interesting and a great perspective on um, how, you know, you can, uh, well, actually, I'll just tell you the title of the book and you'll be like, okay, I get it. Um, It's called The Exitpreneur's Playbook. So um, that's all about, you know, coming, you know, building a business and exiting it and every step in between. Um, I have with me Joe Valley, the author of this book, and we're going to talk about a few things that I've never approached on this podcast that I, you know, my brother's telling me about it. And it sounds like Joe is an expert on. And so really want to dive in. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Scott. I appreciate it. All right. So um, you wrote a book. I'm sure you get the question a million times. Why? Yeah, no, I wrote a book and it's actually harder promoting it and uh, writing it, folks. And <laughs> writing it is not a breeze either. Uh, look, I, I wrote it because I've been in this industry for a decade, and one of the leaders in terms of the most transactions sold in the online space in the sub $25 million market. And I've talked to thousands and thousands of entrepreneurs, and the reality is that most don't have any idea what the process is like or how to navigate it. So I lay that all out in the book, how to navigate uh, the process of selling an online business, what brings value, what plummets value, what the valuation ranges are, what uh, you should avoid uh, or do to avoid what I call the ignorance of discount and giving your buyer lots of instant equity, especially if you're selling on your own, um, and how to set goals and reverse engineer a path to them ultimately, because the reality is most 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 uh, online entrepreneurs and most entrepreneurs in general uh, don't, don't set goals. They just uh, wake up and decide to sell, and that's when you are guaranteed not to get the, yeah. the best value for it. Um, that's very interesting. I like that term that you used, instant equity, in that, like, you know, the buyer all of a sudden, because they bought that business, like, just like uh, what they've built, it really gives them a, a lot of equity from like day one of like, you know, expenses that maybe they don't have or capabilities that they don't. And hopefully my cousin's not listening to this podcast because I bought his private label business a year ago. And um, we had what I would say were a few instant equity things. One, we had a warehouse. He didn't. Mm-hmm. And so um, we were able to leverage another business's warehouse and just charge it essentially for free um, and give them some space. And so immediately uh, the cost of us doing business was a lot better. Second, we knew everything about Amazon and uh, not everything, but like we knew so much about Amazon and that he didn't. Um, 
And we've used those things to instantly leverage and just like, we actually didn't grow the sales of the business. We had supply chain problems, all those reasons, but we grew the profitability uh, 75% in a year. Wow, that's amazing. And um, so that's actually pretty impressive to do with without um, growing sales. So you, and, and you you did that, Scott, because of of your expertise right. in, in the industry, and and because you happen to have a warehouse for another business as well. Uh, and that's one way to get instant equity. The other way, and, and your your cousin, you know, shouldn't have any issue with that because you had things. No, 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 he had. didn't. Uh, he, yeah, he, he didn't have. What, he, what would be frustrating for him would be as if, you know, there were some mistakes that he made in, in the valuation of the business and gave you a big old fat ignorance discount. And that gave right. you instant equity. Those are the ones I have an issue with uh, in terms right. of it frustrates me that somebody would do that just because the material was not out there. And that's back to why so, I wrote So we'll, we'll, we'll dive into that ignorance, ignorance discount, but um, there's something that's used a lot in these transactions, a term. Uh, called addbacks. Uh, do you want to explain what those are and how, you know, say uh, a business that, that achieves a million dollars in sales and they're at 30% profitability, let's just create that as our example business. So, you know, they're, they're running at 300,000 of profit, like what those addbacks could be, addbacks could be for a, an Amazon business. Okay, so we're we're talking about you run a profit and loss statement at the bottom. It says net income and it says three hundred thousand dollars there. Correct. Okay, so that's not what the business is valued off of. First and foremost, really, really critical to understand that it, the values of these businesses are based on a multiple of sellers' discretionary earnings. Keyword discretionary there, and that the way you get to that is that net income line plus the addbacks equals seller's discretionary earnings. Now, what is an ad back? Yes. An ad back is generally a, a one-time expense or an owner benefit, a one-time expense that doesn't carry forward or an owner benefit. So an owner benefit might be, you know, that person who has $300,000 on the bottom line net income also pays himself a hundred thousand. And that's an expense up above the net income line. Yep. So you do an ad back for that owner salary if you've got one owner operator of the business. So now your discretionary earnings goes from three hundred to four hundred thousand. If you're selling that business for a four-time multiple, you just added four hundred thousand dollars to the list price. Legitimate black and white math and logic. Yeah. Other addbacks might be uh, if you're paying for all of your advertising with a cashback credit card, or you buy your inventory with a cashback credit card, or you get reward points that you can convert on paper to cashback. That is an owner benefit, and that is. Uh, very rarely in the profit and loss statement, because most people think, well, I don't want to have to report that because I have to pay taxes on it. Cashback is a discount on advertising. The IRS does not know how to tax it. It's okay to have it in your PL. It would just reduce your net income line anyway. Uh, but it is absolutely without question an ad back. I guarantee you that the aggregators that are paying for advertising are using cashback cards as much as possible and building up uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in uh, in points uh, and never have to pay for travel or furniture or vacations or anything yeah, yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, generally, it's not very hard in this day to get a 2% uh, cashback credit card. And if you push your uh, admins on advertising onto credit card, all of a sudden, like, you know, you get 2% uh, back on that. 
Yeah. There's so many different types of addbacks. We could go really, really into the weeds, but you got to, you know, in, I think it's chapter 11 of the book, we talk about three different levels of addbacks and there's six different levels below each level. When you get really deep into the weeds into level three, um, there's, there's a cost of goods sold potential addback. So think about it. Uh, if I'm buying your business, Scott, and your cost of goods sold went up six months ago, an extra dollar, and you sell a thousand units a month, I'm going to look at that and go, wait a minute, Scott, this new expense is not reflected in the first 12 months of the trailing 12. So, you know, there's $6,000 in expenses that are not there because your cost of goods still have gone up. That carries forward to me. I'm sorry, but we have to discount the letter of intent. I've discovered this in due diligence. You didn't mention that the cost of goods sold went up. I've discovered it in due diligence. We're going we're gonna, to uh, renegotiate with math, with logic. Yeah. $6,000 expense to carry forward. Uh, I'm going to reduce the price by $18,000. The absolute reverse is true. If you reduce your cost of goods sold in the trailing 12 months, in the last six months, then you can go in your P&L, in that ABEX schedule, you can go uh, and make an adjustment of the total number of units sold per month for the first six months times that dollar and put it in the ABEX schedule. It's math, it's logic, the reverse of what a buyer would do if cost of goods sold went up. That new discount carries forward. It makes perfect sense. I've done it lots and lots of times, multiple offers, no problems with it every time. People get, you know, oh, I don't know, I don't know if that's that big. Well, it's math, it, it's logic. Because, well, um, it wouldn't be very hard to get a reduction in your wholesale cost if your most recent purchase order, you're like, hey, we're going to buy really big. We're going to buy five months of uh, inventory. What's your best price you can give us? And say they reduce you $1.50. Um, but that was because you bought really deep. Can you use that? That one time, you know, maybe like because you really went deep and then, then go back a year? That's a brilliant question. If if the discount will carry forward to the new owner of the business, you can use it as an addback. If it's a one time because you took a huge loan out to buy more inventory to then sell your business uh, for a higher value with that discount, you're getting a little gray. Um, but if you can justify and prove to the new owner of the business that that expense, that discount will carry forward as long as they've got the capital, they'll say, yeah, you're right. I've got the capital to buy that. Generally speaking, buyers of online businesses have more capital than the sellers. They come to the table with the purchase price and capital to grow it and make sure they never run out of inventory. So you're getting a little gray and gray erodes trust. You know, when you erode trust, the value right, right, goes right, down. Right. But yeah. Um, yeah, no, there's still a way to like, you know, get into writing like, hey, now that you guys have, uh, it, it's anything that you can do in the, in the last, you say, three to six months before your business of making it, uh, just more valuable. You can say like, hey, we've been selling this product for three years. Can you give us uh, a better price? And yeah, and I, yeah. And I think it's I think it's a creative way of doing it. And I think it would work if the owner of the business is trustworthy. If they if they do something 
to create a shadow of doubt about their trustworthiness, the buyer is going to be all over it and say that, that no, we're not doing that. So if you are a good person, these are the pillars that I talk about in the book. They're risk, growth, transferability, and documentation. The fifth pillar that is really the mortar that holds all those pillars together is the person that operates the business. You need to be a good person that a buyer can trust to stroke a million dollar check to or five million or whatever the amount is. You know, you, you need to be yeah. a decent person. So if you're a little gray and you do a little gray adbex, the trust goes down and so does the value of your business. Okay. Well, um, let's you mentioned something about like how the owner benefit or say an owner makes a hundred thousand dollars a year, you add that back, but like would they come back and say, like, no, it actually takes say say we, if we were to replace you to run that business, we'd pay someone about $60,000 a year. Yeah. Like, like would they, would they, count, would they counter that? They might not many do. Most of these businesses are, are sold as owner operators and bought as owner operators. And therefore that same owner benefit, which is discretionary. I might pay myself a hundred thousand. You might pay yourself 25,000. It's totally discretionary. Okay. If your model like Shaquille Prasla, who, buys businesses and then always puts a CEO in place. If that's your model, you can argue to the seller of the business that, look, I got to pay somebody 60 grand. So I'm only going to accept 40,000 of that $100,000 ad back. But you're going to be at a disadvantage as a buyer because year to date on FBA businesses alone within the quiet light listings, we've had four and a half offers on every single listing. You're going to, you're going to be at a competitive disadvantage if you're going to adjust the um, the ad back for the owner's salary, because you're going to put a CEO in place and you're going to accept that partially. That makes sense? Yeah, yeah. The last year has happened. And if anyone that's been living under a rock, what I mean by that is that um, the aggregators became, become an everyday term for Amazon sellers. So I was actually just telling Joe, I was like, hey, I'm not having aggregators come on the podcast anymore if they don't have anything to add. Like I want to like talk with people that I don't want boring conversations. I don't want to revisit the same thing. And um and that's why you know you talking about this ignorance discount and add backs like was super interesting. But like catch us up to like how you mm. see uh the, the status like everyone is now kind of thinking about like oh I build this private label business and then you know sell yeah. it uh, exit to like some, some aggregator that has like stupid amounts of money. We, you know, um, they've raised maybe up to $10 billion across these, you know, yeah. dozens of aggregators. Um, how has that changed, uh, how we should think about things? How has that changed yeah. the value of the business? Yeah. I get into all that. So it's been very, very good overall, but you know, let's talk about Thrasio, right? So Thrasio is the best known one out there. Uh, you had Ken on the podcast. Ken is a great guy. I've had dinner with him. I love the guy. He's fantastic. Quiet Light has sold uh, many businesses to Thrasio. We we probably sold them about 40% of their businesses early on when they were getting started. But because Ken and Carlos are so likable, so well-funded, so charming, and you want to have dinner with them, it's what makes them dangerous if you're selling your business to them because right. you like them so much, you yep. don't do your own homework and trust their word and you give them a huge ignorance discount. They have their investors and themselves best uh, best, best, best uh, in mind. They've got themselves yep. in mind. That's what's best for them. Stutter step there. Um, so 
Always keep that in mind. Now, have they done good for the industry as a whole? Absolutely. They've done more in the last three years than QuietLight's been able to do in the last 14 years in terms of educating online entrepreneurs about the value of their business, that, that, that they can build it and exit it and make most of the money that they ever make from the business on the day that they exit. So it's been great in that sense, in terms of awareness. It's also been great in terms of pushing the multiples up. You know, three years ago, an Amazon FBA business would have, would have struggled to get, you know, a three-time multiple. Might have been, you know, a little bit less than 2.74. So it rounds down to 2.7 online because there was such risk associated with buying FBA businesses. Yeah. Perceived, and I'm doing quotation marks because I believe it's perceived risk. Today, you know, the average multiple uh, has shot up, you know, a full point, right? And yeah. I say average because, you know, I look at the dashboard for Quiet Light and in the last 12 months, the average multiple has been three and a half. That excludes inventory, folks. It excludes inventory. And it's for businesses ranging from, you know, 68,000, I think is the lowest one to 25 million. So it's a very broad range. We've got multiples yeah. at one and a half all the way up to 7.6. Um, so I don't want to have people go, oh, okay, my business is worth three and a half because it's not so every business is completely different. But the aggregators have done a great thing for the industry. They have billions of dollars to spend as wisely as they can possibly spend it, making the best purchase they can to then get instant equity by putting it into their portfolio, which in immediately increases value, but buying the business, hopefully with an ignorance discount by buying directly as well, as opposed from a brokerage firm. Most of the new aggregators start with the brokerage firms. And then when they get enough speed, enough momentum and get smart enough, they go after you directly and hit your inbox with, I love your brand, would love to pay, you know, all cash close in 30 days and that kind of sales pitch and avoid the broker fee, which you see oftentimes as well. Um, so they've been great for the industry, but at the same time, um, it frustrates me as somebody who understands the inner workings of the process of selling a business, the vast amount of ignorance discounts that are being given. The book will help people that want to sell on their own, Scott. It'll help them get you know 70 to 80% of the way there. Yeah. So if they insist on selling directly to an aggregator, it's there to help them. There's no question um, about it. You know, uh, there's uh, there's obviously some comparisons to like why you'd use a broker for a house. One, um, it's just a lot easier <laughs> to uh, uh, to sell or buy when you you have someone that that kind of like handles a lot of the the details for you. That's why I, I mean, uh, when I sell, you know, I'm never going to do things myself. Just because I prefer to build businesses and not like uh, do a song and dance to, uh, to around these uh, details. Um, but you said a lot of interesting things and um, average is around 3.5. It's gone up a full, uh, you know, point. Uh, and um, what gets people on the top half of that? And, uh, you know, how can you start to like, you know, think about your business and like be like, oh, no, 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 I am closer to a four. Yeah, it's it's the those four pillars of what buyers want. And buyers don't come to us with uh, show me the risk profile, show me the transferability, the documentation and, and, the, and the growth or lack thereof or built in path to growth. They don't come with that all at once, but that's what they're looking at. So we've built the four pillars of value model, uh, helping our clients understand 
what increases value or plummets value. And it is those four things. So with, with risk, touching on a couple of points with each, you know, age and diversification is uh, two massive things. So anything less than 24 months old, buyers are giving it an age discount. It's young, it's too risky. Therefore, we're going to drop that multiple by a half a point to a point. Uh, diversification is critical key. It's called channel risk is really what we call it. So if you've got one SKU doing 90% of your revenue, it's called a hero SKU. It's probably still a sellable business, but the buyer pool is going to be a lot smaller because of the risk and they're not going to pay as much. You know, they're going to look for a discount because of the risk associated with, or they're going to say, because of the risk, because there's one SKU, I'm not willing to give you all cash. um, my uh, like the business that I bought for my cousin, um, I when I talk to aggregators, like they it has uh, seven suppliers, and they're all like, "Ooh, like they don't want to deal with a lot of different suppliers." But yeah. it actually is a very diversified portfolio of products, yeah. like um, very diversified. Yeah, aggregators generally don't want to buy something with a thousand SKUs, right? They like maybe right. five to ten SKUs, but they're definitely asking for a discount if you have one SKU doing even seventy percent of the revenue. I sold one to Thrust not too long ago, where it was a, you know, uh, an electronics product. So there's a fear of obsolescence there. That's part of the risk profile as well. One SKU did seventy percent of the revenue. And they didn't want to touch it because A, it's electronics, and B, it had one hero skew. Eventually, they did because Ken's a great guy. We had dinner with Ken. My client had dinner with Ken. They lived in the Boston area. They drove to Thrasio, met with them. And then they said, these are good people. I trust them. Let's go, <laughs> let's go ahead and buy their business. So that trust you know, and being that good person, that good entrepreneur goes a long way between a sale or no sale or multiple offers and one offer. You want multiple offers and you want all of your buyers to know you have multiple offers. Advisors, brokers do that very well. When you are selling directly to one aggregator, they know that you don't have multiple offers. They know that you're the only, that they're the only game in town. We sold something recently for about five and a half million. And that person went to an aggregator first and got an offer for about 2.6 million. And it's a well-known aggregator, one that's respected. And the aggregator said, look, this is what we do. We know how to do it. We know how to value these. And your business has certain risk levers that are going to always push the value down. This is the best offer that you're going to get. And she said, no, I'm not buying that. And she ended up working with Chuck here quietly. Business got seven offers on it and sold for about five and a half million dollars. So you got to be real careful about how loving and charming and likable these guys are because they are. You want to work with them, but there's danger in that. And in this person's case, it was $2.1 million in danger. Okay. That math, right? So um, uh, now adding on top of that, say you're working with a broker, but like, you know, you could bring these aggregators yourself. You could kind of like shop around. They're, they're very, very public. What value does the broker bring? No, no, that's not exactly the question. It's like, what if you bring, uh, a, like, what if you bring the aggregator that actually ends up buying it? Yeah, it's called a carve-out clause. And generally speaking, we don't do that. And, and it's, it, when somebody has a unique buyer that is unknown, then it's a, it's a, Maybe, but if it's an aggregator, the answer well, is no. Look, just we, what we would say so is that's look, funny because because we bought ours on a carve out clause because it was my cousin. There you like go. that, and then that's that's probably like the best example. Uh, yep. 
because uh, before we even used a broker, we said like, hey, the um, cousin's interested. He's going to make an offer, but we still want to go through a broker. Mm-hmm. And um, we ended up having the best offer actually against Thrasio. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we gave him the, be- the best path to exit his business. Yeah. Yeah. So a carve out cl- clause is okay when it's unique like that, but not yeah. when it's an aggregator. The, the, the reality is that you know, selling a business is not all just about the numbers. There's a lot of details that go into it. And the best advisors are actually the best at managing people's emotions and expectations. And by people, we mean buyers and sellers. Every deal either comes really close to falling off the rails and due diligence and on the way to closing the asset purchase agreement details, or it does fall off. The best advisors get it back on track with no change to the asset purchase agreement or the price of the business. Um, if there's math that was wrong in the P&L and the overall valuation, then there's a logical adjustment. You're off by 6,000, the multiple is three, you discount the price by 18,000. Um, but other than that, there should be no adjustments. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's that when you get when you get two weeks away from a million dollars in your bank account, the advisor is priceless because no. you will get emotional. Something will go wrong and you're like, that's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll take a hundred thousand less. And I, no, you don't have to. I've seen brokers work. They're just going to be better than you at talking through those complicated things. Um, I am in full agreement with what you said. Um, okay. Let's say, you know, you're, you've got five offers on, on your business. Mm-hmm. How do those play off of each other? In getting the most value, do do you ever like say like, hey, we like how you guys want to like structure the exit or maybe like the the transition, but someone else beat you by a hundred thousand dollars or two hundred thousand dollars? Like, if yeah. you guys can you know make up the difference there, like we're going to choose you. Can you communicate that? Does that? No. No, no, you can't. You can't. You can't reveal the dollar offer of the other offer. Um, you can make broad suggestions, but um, and answer questions vaguely. But you can't say, "Look, Scott has got you know an offer that's fifty thousand dollars more than you, but my client likes you more. Just offer fifty thousand and one dollars, and we're good." Can't do that. Um, the really the secret to winning in that multiple offer situation as a as a buyer. Scott is is just be likable, <laughs> you know. Uh, I've sold about a hundred million dollars in transactions personally, another half billion through Quiet Light, and I can't tell you the amount of times that the person who was most likable actually got the best, uh, got got the got the the deal when there were multiple offers. It's not always the highest dollar amount. Now, as a seller, you think initially all you want is the highest dollar amount. Um, when it comes down to it, you, what you really want is to make sure that your offer that you're willing to accept goes all the way from letter of intent through to closing. And you're not going to accept an offer for an extra $50,000 from a jerk, because if they're a jerk now, that jerk yeah. attitude is going to be tenfold in due diligence. And they're just going to try to renegotiate to make your life hell yeah. during due diligence, after closing, et cetera, et cetera. So as a buyer, just be a nice guy and you're probably going to win over all cash buyers at a higher price. Uh, as a seller, um, the all I can say is the best situation possible is when you have multiple offers and you get to choose your buyer. You may choose the one that is the highest cash value because they're also a nice guy. 
uh, or you may choose one that is a little less than the highest cash value. Yeah. Uh, just because the the person who offered the most money, you just there's something about them you don't trust. They don't have a track record of buying businesses, or you know maybe it's an aggregate that bought through us before that. Um, hasn't followed through on any of their LOIs, right? They buy it, they tie it up, they try to renegotiate, and they've made it to our blacklist. It, actually, if they made it to our blacklist, they're never going under LOI. So they might they might get through there once or twice, but never a third time. Right. Um, then I, in, this might be like a pipe dream. I just don't know. Like, is once you have multiple offers, do those offers um, ever like? evolve knowing they're in a competitive bidding. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So in a situation with, with the one I just mentioned that Chuck had, he had, I think he, I think he had seven offers on that five and a half million dollar business. Every buyer had to be told, look, we're in a multiple offer situation. Um, appreciate your offer. Uh, we'd like you to submit your best and final offer by close of business Tuesday. Okay. Right. That type of yep. thing. We're looking for best and final. And we make sure, Scott, that we do it in writing and we say best and final, no matter what, at least one of those seven every time says, well, why didn't you tell me mine wasn't the best of the best and final? I would have come up with more. <laughs> and, you know, what is it that you don't understand about best and final? I think the problem is that there's too many brokers that are a little slippery and salesy. Uh, whereas uh, the people on our team are just presenting facts. We're not salespeople. We're entrepreneurs turned advisors and we present the facts and let, you know, buyers that are stroking a check for a million, two, three, four million dollars, not going to be talked into anything. They're smart people. They've had yeah. some success in life. Yeah. You need to just present them the facts, build the trust with them, and they're going to want to buy from you and they're going to buy that business and hopefully I, be in a multiple offer situation. Yeah, I like that. So I guess you get like one round of offers and like if, it, if they are fairly close and you have difficulty choosing between them, you just, you know, uh, <laughs> approach them one more round, best and final offer. This is, you yeah. know, these are the strengths of this business and why. Mm -hmm. And make notes. Oddly enough, you know, part of the process in every situation should be that, you know, the client reviews all the details about your business after they've signed a non-disclosure agreement. They can't make an offer yet. They should then, the next step, be that they're on a conference call with you and them and you and them and your advisor, if you have one, so that they can hear your voice, see the whites of your eyes, get to know you and build that trust. And then, and only then, after that, not on that call, after that, they submit an offer in writing. Um, so, you you know, you get to know them throughout the process and you as the seller should be making notes after every call that you have with a potential buyer. You know, what did you like about them? What did you not like about them? What 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 is a red flag? What did they say that just makes you want to sell to them over the last person type of thing? Because you will be in a situation, uh, you know, where, again, on, on average, we've got four and a half offers on every FBA business year to date where you'll get people jumbled up. It's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of emotion there. You're about to sell your greatest asset. And you're like, now, was that Jason or was that Sandra? I can't remember what she said. Oh, my God. No, I, I, I think you go with the general vibe and a feel. Um, but taking notes is really important if you're lucky enough to be in a multiple offer situation, which I, I shouldn't say lucky enough because it seems to be the, the norm these days. Yep. Awesome. Well, this is um, a good, uh, I mean, I haven't had um, anyone talk about this for a while on purpose. Because I only want to bring someone in that really uh, can add to this 
uh, conversation. Um, and it is really, you know, rapidly changing. I mean, every, every month an aggregator is raising money. And so you have to consider yep. how things are evolving. There is even a little bit of a conversation about, you know, some of these aggregators might uh, falter. Uh, oh, yeah. The, this, no Q4, question. this Q4, quantity limits, uh, logistics, uh, maybe there some uh, too many of the hero skews. Uh, actually were risky and, 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 um, uh, I personally, I'm, I have a personal interest. I don't want those aggregators to, uh, uh, you know, drop too much. I, I want them to like be around there to, 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 so that the value of these businesses stays pretty strong. Oh, they will be. I mean, the, the reality is that they're starting new businesses and some of them are going to fail. But they're starting new businesses to buy existing businesses. So the risk level goes down dramatically. It's not like just simply starting a, a raw business from scratch. Um, and, and there's some very smart people that are still jumping into the space. Uh, some of those aggregators will fail. They'll get bought up by other aggregators. The biggest mistakes that they'll make is not thinking about the operation of these Amazon business. That if you go back to one-on-one commerce, which was one of the original aggregators that ended up you know, falling greatly short of their goal of buying 101 FBA businesses, they bought 13. They didn't have a process of operating the businesses. Yeah. Um, now you fast forward to one of the latest ones, a guy named Matt Howitt, just a company called Profound Commerce, Matt. Uh, and I go way back, he bought one of uh, the largest businesses from me early on. It was a non-Amazon business. Since then, he's bought four Amazon businesses. He knows how to operate them. He's doing a really great job. He just raised $53 million to my, buy more Amazon businesses. Um, so, uh, you know, some of them are going to fall by the wayside. Some new ones like Matt's Profound Commerce are starting up and are going to do great things. And he's a good person. He's a great, mm -hmm. great guy. Um, but again, he's a great guy. I've, I've had dinner with him. I've had drinks with him. We spent a lot of time together. <laughs> I've sold plenty of businesses to him. And now he's on the buy. You know, he's he's that guy that always wins the deal, no matter how, no matter how many offers there are. And he doesn't make the highest price. Uh, offer. Um, but he's fully got his interest, best interest in mind. And now he's got, you know, uh, investors best interest in mind as well. So yep. it gets a little tricky. Yep. Um, the next evolution beyond a few failings, Scott, is going to be that they're going to buy content sites and drive traffic to their Amazon stores. They're going to buy Shopify stores and take those brands and put them on Amazon. They've got yep. the cash to do these things and, and the team now as well. So okay. it's not over. It'll well, be around for a long time. I can't wait till one of them makes an offer for this podcast. You know, I'm only going to accept $10 million. For, <laughs> I'm totally joking. Um, well, it, it, then I'll be right in line behind you. Quiet yeah, yeah no, I'm, I was on your podcast. 20 million. <laughs> I, I, I was on uh, Joe's podcast uh, almost maybe a year ago. And I got a lot of, there was a lot of smart people listening to your podcast. I had a, a half a dozen reach out, either just say they liked it or follow up questions with me. So well, the, the reason why they reached out, Scott, you, you want to give me credit. You want to give quiet like credit. It's because you were awesome. You were yes. helpful. You gave advice that would allow them to do things without hiring you for your services. And, right. and then when they think about that and they go ahead and, 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 and maybe want to go down that path, they realize they're going to stick to their expertise and hire you instead. All right. So you, you were great. That's the reason why you got those responses. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Well, um, let's uh, wrap up there. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking. Uh, recommend your uh, the book, 
has 95 star reviews on Amazon. So uh, the Exitpreneur's Playbook, I, uh, I've i got a copy. I'm going to start reading through it in the next uh, few weeks. And um, so, but you can get a hold of Joe Valley. Uh, it's Quiet Light Broker, Brokerage. Yeah, quietlight.com. You can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, the Expreneur's Playbook site is exitpreneur.io. Uh, and of course, find the book, uh, amazon.com. Um, I'm happy to connect and chat with you uh, once, you've, once you've dug into it and have any questions. Perfect. Awesome. Thanks, Joe. Um, and everyone, uh, thanks for listening. Stay tuned and uh, we'll have more good episodes coming your way. Thanks. Bye. One, two, three. Yeah.